we are at the situation now where, well, we better just pray. I don't even want to say any more without praying, other than thank you for giving um, me the privilege of being able to worship the Lord with you. All right. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, there's a lot of things we could be doing right now. Sleeping, eating, staring at a blue-lit screen. And yet, Lord, I can't imagine anything more beneficial than the time we're about to spend and the time we've just spent. Lord, you have ordained in this day ministry Ministry to us, ministry through us, ministry for us. And Lord, we can't even possibly imagine all the things you have in store for this day. But we know, Lord, your plans are good plans, the best plans. And if we could see the outcomes you see, I'm sure we would approve every choice you make. But we don't claim to know everything. We just claim to know, Lord, that you are better and smarter and I almost said gooder. Lord, you know. <laughs> you are you are everything perfect and good. And we are none of those. But I've learned in Scripture, Lord, that we become more like what we worship. Whether that be empty visceral and selfish, plastic, depleting, like all of the other false things that are out there. Whether it be more full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Because our, our, our hearts and our eyes are turned towards you. So, Lord, whatever you intend for this time, do what I pray. And I am eager and expectant. Have your way, Lord, I pray. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. And then do through me what I cannot humanly do. Speak to each one of us today, individually, right where we need to hear, where our hearts crave. And speak to us as a family to unite us for the common cause that you've ordained. So we commit this time, Lord, now to you. Immerse me in your spirit. You would appear. Be glorified, I pray. Redeem every second on this beautiful communion Sunday. Jesus, in your name, let your word come alive and be so powerful to each of us now. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Jacob slash Israel is 130 years old. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and the very lovely and talented Suzanne Holiday will bring one right to you. Anyone? There you go. Genesis 42. Jacob is 130. 
It's been a wild ride for the boy. Raised in the household of a father who preferred his brother. Was apparently more manly. Apparently. He was a man of the tents, or might we say a man of the kitchens. Not that there's anything wrong with a man that can cook, right ladies? Amen. But his father has intent to bless his older brother, older by minutes. Jacob was raised with the name Heel Catcher. And regardless of whatever bend someone else may have because they're fearful of what kind of anti-Semitic approach someone may take because of his name, I'm so thankful for his name because we see the evolution of a person that is being, in essence, blasted by the love of God. And God has <clears throat> taken Jacob, like many of us, if not all of us, on a journey to leave who we started to become who he's ordained. That road is not a road we would choose because if we started out as a conniver, if we started out as a plotter and a schemer, we will have already plotted and schemed how to actually become the best person we can be with the least amount of sacrifice. But unfortunately, it's much of that sacrifice that will actually make us the person that God intends for us to be. En route to Jacob's journey, he will wrestle with an angel. And you can argue over who it is. One thing's for sure, Jacob is very outclassed. And after a night full of wrestling, this angel touches Jacob's hip. And the toughest socket on the human body is dislocated with a touch. Jacob will spend the rest of his life limping. As a matter of fact, by the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob will bless Joseph's two sons leaning on his staff. There will always be a testimony of that moment. The moment when Jacob, the ripoff, became Jacob the victorious. Jacob's victory, and please hear me, was not in his wrestling. It was not in his conniving. It was in his surrender. Because although he was wrestling with an angel all night, the angel chose at daybreak, after Jacob had spent the whole night wrestling, to drop him with a touch. If the angel had intended on just simply breaking Jacob, why didn't he start the whole wrestling match with the touch? Because God actually doesn't mind you wrestling. Because in a night full of wrestling, you have to use everything you've got. And if I know Jacob the little bit like of Scripture apparently purports him to be, I'm guessing somewhere about one in the morning, if not sooner, Jacob dropped any form of rules of decorum. Biting, pulling hair. I mean, let's face it. You're wrestling with a guy all night. You think your brother's out there to kill you. There, He's got an army that's coming with him. And a guy shows up in the middle of the night, starts wrestling with you. What hold is barred at that point? What part of the body don't you hit? 
What part, what rules do you say? Well, this guy's going to kill me, but I still have to uphold this rule or this rule. One of the few lessons I ever got from my dad, and understand my dad was not, wasn't, wasn't there to raise me in the, in the Lord, was there's one rule to fighting, win. That's the rule. That was his idea. And again, in Chicago, it made a lot of sense because losing was, the stakes were a little high often. <clears throat> Jacob now, a dislocated Jacob will fall at the, at the knees or at the feet of the one he wrestles and says, bless me. I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now understand, that is the Middle Eastern equivalent to tapping the mat, for those of you who are familiar with wrestling or any form of combative fighting. Combative fighting. Competitive fighting. I guess all fighting is probably com- combative by nature. Anyways, and the idea is simple. You tap the mat and you're saying, okay, okay, I'm done. Uncle, uncle, I'm done. You win. Bless me. The idea of bless me is this fight's over. I give up. I need your blessing so you don't kill me. And the angel at that point says, well, what's your name, boy? As if the angel didn't know. But sometimes God will ask a question because he wants you to hear you answer. Does that make sense? It's like, Lord, you already know the answer. God says, but do you know your answer? Adam, where are you? Hiding from you, Lord. God's like, I just want you to hear you say it. It isn't like the Lord's going, gosh, he's good. Where did he go? I should have made this place a little less full of foliage, man. This is hiding behind the fig leaves, Lord. What's your name, boy? Revoff? Heel catcher? Leash Yanker? If you're from the surfing world. Let's change that. Let's not have anyone call you that anymore. Let's call you contended with God, victorious with God, governed by God. The problem with Jacob, like all of us, is that we really would rather it not be a process but a switch, especially if if you pardon me for getting a little general, especially some of us guys, because we like to fix things. We're much less a dial or we're much more of a switch. I've learned this. There's some people, it's like they can turn things up or down. We just got off and on sometimes. That's all there is, you know, and so God, but the problem is, is that just like Simon Peter, just like Abram to Abraham, God is in the process of changing us by eradicating who we were to make us who, we, who he wants to make us. Now, the problem I have with that is, is I would just love for God to go, you're the new guy. Now, scripturally, when we stand before him, we are a new creation. But God makes really clear in Scripture that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. It wasn't just whoever said yes to Christ became one. Switch got hit. The position has changed. You've been adopted by the King of Kings, and nothing's going to be able to change that. But there's a problem. Let me say it this way. In Scripture, and again, don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. 
Let the Bible always have the final say. Do you know that in Scripture it says that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved? <laughs> does, doesn't God, is God having a hard time making up his mind? I mean, and they all relate to sin. How does that work? Well, follow me on this. And I'm not the first person to come up with this. But the idea is simple. The Father sent His Son to pay the price so that we could be saved from the penalty of our sin. The penalty. The penalty would be separation from God. Does that make sense? And the moment you've said yes to the Father's gift, the moment you said yes to the Father's gift, you have been saved. From that point on, the penalty of sin has been paid in its full. It's past tense. It's a closed deal. It's it. The enemy can try to throw your past at you, but Jesus has covered it in his blood. Thank you, Father, for doing so. You've been saved. Have been saved. It's a done deal. You can go back and say, August this day or whatever was my rebirth day, or whatever it would be for you. But God has given you his Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians 1.13, it says, Having believed, you were marked or sealed with God's Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of our inheritance, by the way. And his Holy Spirit is saving you. From what? The power of sin. Oh, I was saved from the penalty the moment I said yes to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit begins the work the moment you said yes, and he starts cleaning you from the inside out. Now, I would love it if the Holy Spirit would have just hit the switch and boom, guess what? Instant, Mr. Holy non-sinner, never do anything wrong again, amen. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't you love it if I became that person? Actually, maybe not, because wouldn't it stink if I was that person and you weren't? And there are some people out there, if you'll pardon me for saying, that are deluded enough to actually think they've never sinned since they said yes to Jesus. Well, lying is one of those sins, so there's the start of it all. <laughs> My brother, who's a pastor, by the way, had a couple that came in, and a guy, they call this glorious sanctification, and a guy came in, and he actually said, well, I've never sinned since I've given my life to Jesus. I've never sinned. So my brother, in his infinite wisdom, turned around to the wife and said, your husband just said a phenomenal thing. He's just said that he actually hasn't sinned since he gave his life to Christ, and he said he left the office. They were still fighting. Anyways, um, <laughs> now understand... Let me say it the way that it shows us, and we'll look at this when we get to Exodus and Numbers, when God promised to give the land to the people of Israel. He says, I'm not going to give it all to you at once. He says, I'll tell you what, you're just not fruitful enough yet. He's looking at a tribe of Dan, and they're kind of a puny group of people at that point, and he's like, look it, here's the deal. I'm going to give you enough land to occupy. It'll be abundant for you. But as you grow and as you walk, I'll give you more. And as you grow and as you walk, I'll give you more, parcel by parcel. He goes, because if I gave it all to you right now, most of it would be barren, little of it would be appreciated, and it would just become a place that would just be for jackals and things that live off of dead stuff. God says, I don't want that. And if God totally changed everything about you the moment you said yes to Jesus, you would never appreciate half of what he'd done. Besides, then you would only be able to tell me how great God was in your life. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, the best you'd have today is, well, he paid a bill. 
yeah, that is pretty powerful, but it isn't as powerful, to be honest, as to say, you know what, I have walked with this thing now for 20 years or with 18 years or for five years. Or for some people, it's like, man, I still struggle with this sin. I've been a Christian for four months. What is going on? And you're older and you're going, don't worry, parcel by parcel, part by part, he's going to give it to you. But the cool thing is when God does deliver you from something, you can look back and go, let me tell you how Jesus is the, and how his Holy Spirit's powerful and alive in my life today. Because the things that I actually even wanted to do two weeks ago, I don't even want to do today. Thank the Lord for that, because he's still alive. And that's part of the process of God making me from who I was to who he's making me. Do you see that? And that's that Holy Spirit's work. Now, Jesus one day is going to come for me. And you too, if you've said yes to him. In fact, it could be today, and if I don't stop, it might be right in the middle of this. It's a good time for him to come, because hopefully you're in your very best. Now, but think of it this way, that one day when he does come that he is going to take me, and according to the Gospel of Isaiah, it says that even the things of the former will not be brought to mind or remembered anymore. God's going to do a mind sweep. Now, whether you like it or not, I love that. So let me say it this way, that the Father in his gift of Jesus delivered me so that I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Got that? His Holy Spirit placed inside of me is delivering me currently from the power of sin. But one day Jesus is going to come for me and deliver me and then deliver me or save me from the very presence of sin. It won't even be around anymore. I won't be able to find it. I won't be able to remember it. And that's why he has to wipe the memory because otherwise the presence of sin would be there in my memories. I'll remember how I did something stupid or how you did something stupid or how we did something stupid. And I don't want, that's not, how, how can it be heaven if we still have to battle all of that? Man, when I stand before the Lord, the Lord is so holy, even the memory of sin can't stand before him. Isn't that beautiful? Do you actually realize there's one area God chooses to let you know better than him? Isn't that weird? And that's the memory of your sin. You ever try to remind God of what he's choosing to forget? How dumb is that? Lord, you know, I did it again and I did it like this. And, you know, I remember back when I did it the last time. And God's like, no, I really don't. And you're like, oh, you know everything. God goes, but I choose not to remember that anymore. Because love does that. Now, isn't that beautiful? Now, why am I even bringing you this lengthy thing? Because what we're in the road of here is the road between the old man Jacob and the new man Israel. You got that. And one of the beautiful things about these guys, whether it be Jacob to Israel, Abram to Abraham, or Simon to Peter, is what God needs to do in each of their lives to make us less the bozo we were and more of the saint that he's intending to create for us. And according to scripture, we read that we are his masterpiece. The word is workmanship, but it, the word in the Greek is poema. It is the word used for masterpiece. And I'd like you to consider God spoke the universe into existence, all of its colors, all of its magnificence. He said, be, and it was. Only God can do that on a nothing, but how much time has he taken with you? If God can do that with the word be, and then he's taking time with you, which thing do you think is his masterpiece? And you say, well, the universe didn't have a will. Well, I think that's all part of the masterpiece. Because to be honest, scripturally, the artwork he's making us is performance art, created for good things, good works, which he 
prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Now, Jacob is in, or Israel, is in an interesting situation. Ten of his boys have gone to get food because they're starving to death in the famine. One of his boys that he thinks is dead was his favorite. That was, by the way, in the chain, number 11 of 12, is in Egypt actually saving the world. (laughs) He doesn't even know it's his son. The boys were the ones, these ten older ones, were the ones who betrayed him by selling him in the first place over 20 years ago. And Jacob now has a lot to learn. But I guarantee you, just like Jacob, if God would have put you in this situation, your mind would melt to think that this could be reality. You've thought for over two decades that your son is dead. Could you imagine being reconciled to a brother or a father or anyone after two decades? I can. I hadn't seen my older brother since I was about two. Oh, he would send, for those of you who may remember, the antique cassette. He would send cassettes of the jazz bands he was playing in to my mother as she was dying. I remember him by his voice. It's a fairly unique voice. But when my mom, he left at about two, when I was about two, he's considerably older, and I like to remind him of that. And that was it. When my mom passed away, I was 11, hadn't seen him, until I had gotten married, and I'd gotten married at 25. My wife is big family. Her family tree is like a banyan tree. You know, it's just like there are branches everywhere. She can chase her family lineage beyond the Mayflower on this side. Her parents have already gone and done pilgrimages here to find tombstones. And there's even a really cool one of those brass things in a, in a church of a crocker. Because their maiden name is Crocker. That's why she bakes so well. Anyways, <laughs> like Betty Crocker. And, and in all of that, they know that my family tree looks a little bit more like a shrub. That's already been trimmed down to death. It's a stump, you know. And so we're a little bit opposite of that. So you can imagine, when we got married, there were about 350 people at our wedding. Four knew me. Okay, maybe six, because there was a bridal party. And if you watch our video, it's a beautiful thing, because you'll see, Suzanne, I've known you since you were like this big, and Anthony, I can't wait to meet you. It's Anthony, thank you very much. Anyway, now, the only reason I say that is, why in the world am I, am I where am I going with that? Um, is that, is that when, when all of a sudden the Lord gave me a dream, and it was a supernatural thing, my wife hit the roof. She was like, you have to call him, you have to blah, blah, blah. And, and after, after 20 years... We reconciled, and I was there studying, was looking to become a a pastor. He was a pastor, and is, at a Calvary Chapel in Northern California. And the Lord reconciled us. An amazing story. But I can tell you, in all of that, I mean, I knew he existed, but the, the thought of ever seeing this guy again was a crazy dream. But at least I didn't think he was dead. But to think your child is dead for over 20 years, 
They go, well, maybe he's actually alive and actually saving the planet. I mean, the idea of anybody being dead and then actually seeing him alive after that is a little hard to swallow. Do you see what God's preparing us for? In chapter 42, verse 25, the boys have come. The younger brother has spoken roughly to him, called him a spy, much like Joseph was treated. And now he's going to start fleshing this whole thing out. But I'd like you to look at the names given to dad, because he's going to show up in both chapters. Verse 25, Joseph gave the command to fill their sacks with grain. Simeon, the third oldest, um, has, second oldest, I'm sorry, <coughs> has been arrested. The other boys have been sent home with grain and their money in their sacks. And it says, he gave command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provision from the, for the journey, thus he did for them. So he loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his money feed, I'm sorry, his donkey, feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Now, I'd like you to look at a bit how strange this is and what happens when a guilty conscience changes the way you look at things. These boys have sold their brother away over 20 years ago, and you would like to think that they've forgotten the matter, but now they're in Egypt where their brother was sold to. Now, put it this way. Imagine you walk down the street and you find a sack of money. You open it up and there's a sack of money. The first thing you think is, I can't believe God would do something as horrible as this to me. Any of you think that way at that moment? You get a check from someone and you're like, oh, wow. God, what are you doing? Please help me. You really see what happens? And we, we, we can't overestimate, can't underestimate, we can't underestimate the power of a clean conscience. Let me tell you what Scripture says. In Proverbs 28.1, it says, The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Man, when you live with a guilty conscience, i got to tell you, one of the biggest issues is you will always think something. You can't look with the same glasses anymore. If you live your life ripping off other people, you will always assume other people are there to rip you off because that's your world. If you lived your world, world getting where you were by connivory, you will always assume someone's got a plot out for you because that's the world you live in. I'd heard an old Indian fable about two children that were exchanging things when they were kids because they were children. Otherwise, they couldn't be children doing it. And one of them had marbles and one had candy. And they said, I'll tell you what, I don't want my marbles anymore. You don't want your candy anymore. Let's swap them. But that night, before they traded it in, the boy with the marbles took his three or four best marbles and he tucked them aside. And then the next day made the exchange. But the boy with the candy didn't think twice of anything. He just gave all of his candy away. Now that night, the boy who gave away his candy slept perfectly. But the boy who had kept a few marbles laid awake wondering what pieces of candy were kept from him. You see how that works? And the whole point of it's simple. 
We live in the reality we often create when it comes to the world around us and how we engage it. And the reason I say that is, we're in a situation here where these boys have opened up their sacks, they've gotten grain, they found the money in there, and they think, oh man, God is punishing us. When was the last time you found money and thought God was punishing you? And I'll tell you, there have been times where I thought it was money and it wasn't money, and I thought I might have been punished for it. I mean, obviously, coming to a country where things look a little bit different, rather ill the last week and a half, and I'm sorry about that, and so so that I went to the bank and I deposited or tried to deposit a bill. The poor girl behind the counter looked at me like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, hey, it's credit. It's not credit. I was trying to put it in my account. She's like, well, and the other, I had another check with it. And she's like, you need to pay this. I'm like, well, why don't you use this other money to pay? It didn't work that way. Anyway, <laughs> that poor girl was so confused. And then so was I. Now, listen, <coughs> Titus 1.5, listen to this. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind, listen, and their consciences are defiled. You know, do you find it amazing that there is just nothing you can say to some people that they don't turn into a sexual reference? It doesn't matter what it is. And you're like, well, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling a little bit upset. <laughs> I don't know what that means. What? <laughs> well, I just tripped on a curb. Oh, I tripped on Get it tripped on a curb? What? I tripped on a curb. And it's amazing how some people, it's like, it doesn't matter what you say, it just turns into this weird double entendre. You're like, forget it. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to be silent. <laughs> it's enough. We're done. You know, and it's like, and to some people, that's just their world. And then there are other people, and you know, we don't want to be this, because in this society, you don't want to be the person that goes, I don't get it. But there, you know, there is a blessing in that. When you say something, and you know, there are some times where people will say something, and you know, I, I wasn't raised on the clean side of the track, but the Lord has done a real work in my life. But there are times, and I'm, I just don't want to pick on anyone because I don't want to make fun of Landon, but I'll say one thing about him once. We were in a conversation once, and this is something to, to Mark, and it's being recorded. God help us. And he just said, and we were just talking, and he just says, it's all fun and games until someone has a baby. And, they, we had, and it was like, and we, we, didn't even, we just didn't want to swallow that one. We were just going to walk away. And he's like, sorry, I was homeschooled. You know, and the, the, reason, the reason I say that is it was his, he was the purest in what he was saying, but it, did, it was a little weird. Anyways, here's the point of it, is that God knows that he created you to have a clean conscience. But the problem is, is that once we do something wrong, there is a part of us that just knows that really that needs to be punished. And that becomes the problem. As for 20 years now, these guys have done this thing to their brother, but they really haven't received any form of universal recompense for it. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the story of Othello, when Othello was performed in the Wild West, that's California and Oregon and such in America, If you know the story, and I'm just going to really ruin it for you, the bad guy seems to get away at the end. That it was a really dangerous thing to play the role of Iago. Because when you're playing with a bunch of guys that have six shooters in their pockets, if you do the job well, many of those men were shot at 
the end of the performance by someone who saw the play because they were so upset that the guy got away with it. Because there's this sense of justice inside that says, that guy can't get away with that. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> now he did. Like, you just shot an actor. <laughs> you know, you thought, wow, you really brought the house down. That's a good time to be a bad actor. And the reason I say that is God has placed within us that sense of justice. We can warp that. Now listen. It tells us in 1 Timothy 4 too that there are those who have had their own consciences seared with a hot iron. That's one thing we can do. Is we can sedate ourselves and try to fry our conscience until we just don't feel anymore. But your conscience is there for a reason. It is the bell that hangs out right before the jagged rocks so that your ship does not crash to shore. It is there to keep you safe. And have you ever spoken to some people and you're trying to tell them that what they're doing is wrong and they look at you like the idea, the concept of wrong doesn't exist? And they've seared their conscience. They're like, well, what if I just beat you half to death because it was fun for me? Well, you know, that's your prerogative. And I think, oh my goodness, is that far? On the other side of it, by the way, the purpose of the command in 1 Timothy 1.9 says, is, by the way, love and having, by the way, and God intends, by the way, of us having faith, listen, and a good conscience. And a good conscience, by the way, is one that works and one that is clean. And I want you to recognize that outside of the gift of Jesus Christ and God's biblical answer, the, the, the guilty never gets punished. There's a difference between saying, well, you did a little bit wrong and I'm going to pardon you versus you did something wrong. I'm going to punish my son for it, but at least the, the guilt gets punished. These guys here are in a really rough situation because at this point, understand this is what happens when it catches back up with you and it will catch up back up, catch back up with you. God had, by the way, promised this in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. It says you can be sure of this. Your sin will find you out. Do you know what that means? If your sin will find you out, what that means is you're trying to hide from it, but it will find you. And no matter what you do, sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. It says it this way, by the way, in Proverbs 28, 13. Who, he who covers his sin will not prosper. In other words, the person who's always just busy kind of trying to, trying to make sure that nobody can find it. But whoever confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sin." He, that's Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us, listen to this, listen, from all unrighteousness. Not just some. In the Peter letters, by the way, 1 Peter 3.21, when he talks about baptism, he says it's not the washing of filth from the flesh. It is the answering of a clean or a good conscience before God. And the reason is, is that I know that all of my guilt and my filth and my nastiness was buried with Jesus and left there. <clears throat> and that's the beauty of it. Now, therefore, what happens when your past comes up? You're like, well, you know what? You still may have to pay for the warrant you done. You still may have to pay back. And I would recommend you do. If you stole for someone and then you gave your life to Christ and said, well, Jesus forgave that. Well, then make it right. Be a Zacchaeus and turn around and say, you know what? I'm going to do what the Bible says. And if you actually, if that happened, that guy might get saved. 
Because scripturally, it says when you steal from someone, you pay them back up to fourfold. And to be honest, if that happened, fever would be actually all right. I mean, what would happen is someone's like, you know, because let's face it, in a lot of the system, somebody gets becomes the victim, and then they become the victim of the courts. It's like, but somebody stole from you, and the guy's like, you know what, you're right. He got caught, and he turned around. Imagine if what happened then is that the guy that set fire to that furniture store had to, had to build four furniture stores for that family. You start to see what's going on here. That guy's going to be a victim for the rest of his life because there's no way that he's going to get that back. At best, he can charge an insurance company and the insurance company's the victim. They didn't set it on fire. And the reason I say that is, is if you've done something wrong, then man, make it right. But do that for the sake of representing Jesus. These guys, man, they don't even know what to do with their guilt. And now they found the money and they're like, oh, what do we do? God's punishing us. We found money. All right, so what has this God has done to us? Verse 29, they said to Jacob, their father, now they have to go explain this to dad. In the land of Canaan, told him what had happened to them, saying, the man who was Lord of the land spoke roughly to us. He took us for spies of the country. We said, we're honest men, which we know better. But they may, you know, I mean, they're honest enough now that the conscience, by the way, one of the ways you can tell an honest person is it's a person who knows how to deal with their conscience. A person who, by the way, doesn't have a conscience or has seared their conscience cannot possibly be an honest person. Let's be honest. Because it tells us, if we say we have not sinned, we lie, do not practice the truth. If we say we have not sinned, we actually make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. That's a dangerous place to be. We said we're honest, men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers, the son of our father. One is no more and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, twice they've said that now, said to us, By this I will know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food from the famine, for the famine, to your households and be gone. Bring your youngest brother to me so that I will know that you're not spies, but that you're honest men. I will grant your brother to you that you may, tra- that you may trade in the land. It happened as they emptied our sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when their father saw the bundles, they were afraid. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Oh, man. Now, understand, I, I need to give you one of the few words I'll give you in Hebrew, and the word for bereave. <clears throat> Could you say, please, shechal? Shechal is the word here for bereave. It is the word that is used to describe a miscarriage. The idea of somebody actually in thinking they're going to have a child, the child has been growing in them, the, all the great expectation, and then the child is stillborn or is born premature and dies. And that's the word that he is using. And he'll use it at least thrice before we're done. And he's like, this is what you've done to me. You've aborted my child. That's what he's saying. So understand, that's some pretty heavy language. Now, by the way, verse 36 Who is saying this? Who is saying this? Okay, who is it again? Jacob. Did you notice that? Not Israel. Jacob. As a matter of fact, what you're finding in all of this text in chapter 42 that we're going through, it will be Jacob, 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 Jacob. And you know what? Jacob, no, here's the part of it all. Simeon's in jail. Remember, he's kept back. 
This guy, and remember, this is Joseph. He has one full brother. That's the boy who didn't show up on the last one. He just wants to see his brother. You can understand why he's laying this test out before them. How do I know you guys haven't killed him? You need to bring this boy back if you're going to eat again. He knows the famine's going to be seven years. These boys will be back. There's no other place to go for food. Joe's your only hope. And you could say, well, I don't like that. That's closed-minded. I think we should go to Mesopotamia. Good on you, but you're starving to death on the way. Egypt and Joseph are your only option at this moment. And with that, Joseph knows that, and he's banking on that, and he wants to see this brother. If he really is alive, he loves this kid. This is his only brother. That's the full brother. And, and with that, that have the, from which they share both mother and father. And, and with that, he wants him back. Now, his dad's looking. Remember, this is the problem. And hear me out. This is the problem with the Jacob, because all Jacob can see is Jacob. And that's like every one of us. This is what God wants to deliver every one of us from. Hear me. The power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I mean, we want to say, I want to tell you the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to call down fire and I want lightning to fly from my fingertips. And I want to be able to go poof, walla wama, and everybody falls over and clucks like chickens. And God's like, stop! You really think this is what I want to do with my Holy Spirit? Well, God, what I want you to do is deliver me from my enemies. And God goes, I'm delivering you from the biggest problem you have right now. You. And until you're willing to realize that, you will fight the Holy Spirit for what He wants to do in your life. Because what He really wants to do is get you away from you. You know, some people are like, I just need to go find myself. I'm like, don't let me be there when you get there. I found myself once and I couldn't wait for God to kill him. And that's not, that's not self-deprecating. That's not me being falsely humble. I am being honest with myself. You know when Paul says, I know that in me nothing good dwells. That's in and of my flesh. Some of us, by the way, will be able to say that with confidence and others of us will be acting. But truth be told, sooner or later, God has a way of actually wanting you to hate what he's going to take from you anyways so you can stop fighting him for it. Because he would rather be thanked for what he's doing He'd rather be thanked for what he's doing. So you have this giant melon-sized cyst growing on the side of you, but somehow you think it's cute. And so you actually draw a face on it and go, hey, you guys, check me out. I'm the two-headed guy. It's like hermonculus. Makes me popular. And God goes, that thing's killing you. And he wants you to hate it so that when the doctor cuts it off, you can thank the doctor. And the doctor says, I want to get rid of that. You're like, no, no, no. I love it. You're like, you can't even button up your shirt. You're wearing maternity shirts because you got this melon growing on the side of you. Yeah, but it's lovely. It makes me different. You should see me around Camden. I'm going to get it pierced tomorrow. You know, and God's like, stop it. I would rather you love what I give you and hate what I'm taking away. Isn't that weird that we could actually love what kills us? Isn't that weird? Let me see how Paul says it. Because he's kind of graphic. And, and I like that. I'm a guy. I like that graphic stuff. Um, first of all, that kind of thing where maybe you read it quickly, and this is one of those areas you really shouldn't, where it says, why do I do what I don't want to do? What I do what I do, I don't want to do. What I don't want to do, that I do. Why do I do what I don't want And in the end of it all, you're kind of, you're hearing Frank Sinatra going, doobie, doobie, do. I'm not really sure how that works. Right? You're like, God help me. Here it is. Paul says, here's good. I want to do this and I don't. Here's bad. I don't want to do it. And I find myself doing it. 
by the way, this is like 20, 30 years into his walk with Christ. Is any of you, are any of you comforted by that? 30 years into it, God's given him more and more ground. He's writing these beautiful letters. He's writing scripture. The Bible's coming from his hand or his dictation. And yet in all of it, he still struggles with sin. And you're going, whew. That, by the way, here's the other side of it, though. Don't just go, whew. The guy hates the fact that this is happening. Don't go, well, I'll just kind of just deal with it. It's just who I'm going to be. No, it's actually just who you are at the moment, but not forever. Praise God for that. And then he says it this way. Who will deliver me from this? Does anyone know what he calls it? Body of death. I don't even know what that is. That was a Roman death penalty. And this is the way it works. Weird. The Romans had this way of inventing really gross ways of killing people and showing everybody else so that everyone would go, ew, don't do whatever he did. It was a preventative measure. And that's understandable. So here's the idea. There's this condemned criminal. And what they did with this condemned criminal is they wanted everybody to recognize that there is a way to make sure that this guy doesn't escape. So what they did is they took a dead body. And what they did with this dead body. Oh, stay this way. Stay this way. They took this dead body and they chained him to him. Chained him around him. Yeah, yeah, you can imagine. Now, the one thing that we're not going to do here, the one thing we're not going to do here is they strip them naked. We're obviously not going to do that. Now, now get this. Yeah, now get this. They chained him. You know how long they chained him? Till he dies. You see, understand, it doesn't matter how living James is going to be. His living will not overcome this dying. Did you get that? And see, understand, he's got to walk around with this. He's chained He's chained, and he's got to walk around. With a dead body, he's dragging with him everywhere. You got to, oh, it's like dead body snuggle time. So, okay, have, have, have a seat. Now, there are over 300 different kinds of bacterium, including, of course, Staphylococcus, which is a flesh-eating bacteria. That's why when you have staph infections, it's a serious thing. It eats your flesh. Things like strep throat. That's, that starts, it doesn't do just, it doesn't just make things bad or swell up. It starts eating flesh. That's bad. You probably get that. But by the way, it's good for death. Because you actually want death to be eaten away. Otherwise, what happens is it doesn't go away. And that helps. That's part of what God does to actually sort of the circle of life. That's all part of it. The real circle of life. Now, the whole idea of this is, sooner or later, what's going to happen is, that dead body ultimately is going to make its way into James's living body and it's going to win. Do you get that? Now listen, that is now that image is gross, isn't it? I hope so. I hope it's as gross as Paul intended for as God intended because that's the way Paul looks at his sin nature. The thing the moment when he actually steps into the pond where he knows he's not supposed to be, I pray you see that too. The moment you're on the internet and you get a little bit careless and you're, and you're starting to go, well, I could, and the thing flashes up, hey, and you go, up. see, that is a dead body you could strap onto you. See what that looks like on you. The problem is you get comfortable with it after a while. But Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Which one of you would invite James to your party like that? The word wretched is pretty appropriate, isn't it? O wretched man that I am, who will, listen, listen, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, oh, praise be to Jesus Christ. He goes, you know what? Jesus went and went, wah! And he just cut those chains and then he healed you. And then he put all life in you and took all that death off. And the craziest part about it is I look back at that dead body and go, I miss you. 
You were like a coat to me. You kept me warm in those cold nights, which is every day of April and some of May already. And, and the reason I say that is, is that's the way he looks at it. That's the way Paul looks at that sin nature, is a dead body. 30 years into it. And the reason I say that is Paul never stopped, never, he never numbed his conscience to sin. He says, not that I've already attained it. When he's in prison, he's towards the end of his ministry. He's a few years away from getting his head locked up. And he goes, not that I've already attained it, but I'll tell you this. I leave what is behind, behind, and I press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes, man, if I want to look back at all of that stuff, I will never. I mean, you, I mean imagine with there's, you know, there's Usain Bolt, and he's just sort of already, he's at the blocks, and he's already. And all of a sudden, it's like, the, the, the gun goes off, and he just starts looking backwards as he's running. He's actually, even he's going to get beat by someone. I mean, if he spends his whole time going, all oh, right, look at what I'm leaving behind. Because sooner or later, you realize it's the guy that's got that ahead of him that's going to win this. Now, he's so quick, he actually can get most of the way there, then look back and go, ha, ha, where are you guys? Are you back there somewhere? But in our text, this is Jacob, and this is what he's dealing with, and he's so consumed with him. He's so consumed with him that he's just like, Ah, oh, you've bereaved me. Oh, look at you. You're killing me. All of my children you're taking away from me and I'm going to be alone. Stop. Do you hear that? Have you ever told? Yeah. Did you ever tell? That's what we sound like. Have you ever told the Lord that if he didn't move in a situation, you would be alone when he died to be with you? Could you imagine what that sounds like to him? But I'm going to be all alone. And the Lord's like, you know, I should leave you alone just to give you a feeling what that really feels like. But I love you too much to give you what you're saying. James is, or Jacob here, it's just him and him. <laughs> Sorry, James, not this, you know. Money was in the sack. Jacob, the father, said to him, look it, you've bereaved me. Joseph's no more. Simeon is no more. That tells you what happens when you think you're going to send someone to Egypt. He's just, going to, he's just dead. That's what they thought of their brother. Certainly that's what he thinks of Simeon. And he says, and now you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Did you get that? That now, what we have at this point is it's a full-on red carpet pity party. And you know, by the way, do any of you ever want to go to anyone else's pity party? And imagine the, how awkward it would be for the boys. They're like, um, look at he just said, there's no way we're going to go back and get this unless we take Benjamin. His dad goes, the whole world is against me. Dad, get over it. We're all going to starve unless we take Ben with us. I agree with you. It's a pretty rough world we're living in right now. But um, can I sequester the Israel out of you for a minute? Because the Jacob's the conniver, and what Jacob's saying is, I can't connive my way into this one. I'm stuck. And by the way, the Lord has a way of disqualifying every little trick you have in your bag till sooner or later, all you're left with is a bent hip. Jacob's not going to wrestle anymore that way. He's not going to connive his way out of this one. He's not like, I tell you what we'll do. Let's go and let's call 1-800. Let's get on the phone w, or on the, on, on the internet, www.rentaben. And we'll find someone that looks like him and we'll rent someone and bring him down there and say, he's Ben. 
can't do that. At this point, it's not going to work. There's no conniving left. He is at the end of his resources. And by the way, if you're anything like him, and we've all been there, it's a really rough place to be. So what happens? He says, you shall not go down. Notice, this is what Jacob says. Reuben steps up in verse 37. He says to his dad, kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you. Remember, Reuben's already been disqualified as the oldest because he's actually slept with one of his dad's concubines. And he says, now, one man in his right mind, now, one man's going to say, sure, if I lose, if I lose him, why don't you just, why don't I just kill two of my grandchildren? You really think dad's going to go for that? Well, he says, so go ahead and kill my kids. The brother's dead. He's left alone. If the calamity should fall, I'm on the way you should go. Then, well, you can bring down, but he's just like, if the calamity should fall down, you bring my head down to the grave in sorrow because you are not taking my boy. That's what Jacob says. Now, I'm going to walk through this quickly. Chapter 43. The famine was severe in the land. It came to pass when they had eaten up the grain that they had brought from Egypt that the father said to him, go back and buy us a little food. Judah spoke up now. And he said, this man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless my brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For this man said, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Verse 6. And who said? Oh, guess what we're getting is we're getting a little bit of Israel now. What does he say? He doesn't start out this way, but listen. Why did you deal so wrongfully as to tell, to tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you have to tell him in the first place? But why did God even call him Israel here? Because what we can't see, and hear me on this, what we can't see in Israel's words is that he's going to let him go. At this point, the words don't say it, but God sees the heart. And he goes, there's an Israel coming out right now. You don't know it, but Israel's coming out. You know what? It's like we saw a pretty ugly Jacob in the last moment, but now the hunger is bad enough. And this is what it'll take for some of us is the hunger has to stay and keep gnawing at you and keep getting emptier and more desperate and more empty. And sooner or later, you're just like, I can't take it anymore. And God goes, that's what it's going to take to get the Israel out of you because the Jacob has been ruling for a while. Do you get it? You know what's amazing is how far Jacob will go before he actually surrenders to Israel. Like all of us. He says, why did you have to tell him in the first place? Verse 7, they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? We told him according to the words. How could he possibly have known that he would say, your brother, bring him down? Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that he may live and not die, both we and all of us and our little ones. I myself will be surety. Notice the difference. Judah, who will be the father ultimately of our Messiah, doesn't say, kill one of my kids, kill both of my kids, or whatever. By the way, he's got at least four sons at this point. And, and with this, he just looks and he goes, look it, you can put all of that guilt on me if this doesn't work. And boy, he's preparing me for Jesus with that statement. And by the way, by this point, he's number four on the line of the brothers, of the 12 brothers. 
And he's number four. The oldest has slept with one of dad's concubines. He's disqualified from being the firstborn. Brothers two and three, that's Simeon, by the way, and Levi, slaughtered the entire town of Shechem. They've been disqualified from being the firstborn. Judah, at this point, is taking the role of firstborn. And he steps up now as firstborn, and he says, I'll be surety. Do you get it? You know what? It works. He speaks, and I love this, Judah is speaking to Israel. He's not speaking to Jacob at this moment. He's speaking to Israel. And God knew it took that much famine, that much hunger, to get enough Israel out of him so that Judah could speak to that Israel. I pray for that when we do counseling with people and we speak. Because, you know, obviously, usually the counseling is because there's a whole lot of Jacob that needs to be eradicated. And I pray, God, please get that Israel out of him because Jacob's not going to want to listen to this. You talk to a couple that's in crisis. What do you got? You got two Jacobs married. They don't marry well. And what happens ultimately is like, you know, they're not going to take the counsel. But what happens is you're like, Lord, please get that Israel out of them enough. That new creation so that when, when your word goes forth and your counsel goes forth, that they'll go, yeah, okay, sacrifice. That's what's going to take. So there's notice. So it says in, in, in Judah, verse 10. Had we not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. Man, you know, if we keep talking like this, we're all going to starve to death. We would have been back by now, Dad. Verse 11. And the father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels. Carry down a present. By the way, that is customary to visit a dignitary. Take down the present for a man, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back the money that was returned into the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Sure. Take your brother also and arise and go back to him. And then verse 14, and this is why I know Israel is there. May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Guess who just stepped into the picture? Not just a God, not just God, God Almighty, El Shaddai. It's the fourth time, by the way, that we've actually seen the term God Almighty. And that's important. And that's where we're going to bring this around to close. And we're going to get communion. And we're going to have communion before God Almighty. But please understand something. There are times when he's God. He's great God. He's wonderful God. He's nice God. He's happy God. And he is all those things. He's the blessable God. But there are times where the only God we can approach, though he's all the same one, is God Almighty. Because there are certain moments when the only thing left is, I am out of all my resources. And the only thing left is, I need Almighty at this moment. And when God introduced himself as God Almighty, by the way, he actually wasted a whole bunch, I shouldn't say wasted a bunch of chapters. He took 16 chapters and never said it. And the 17th chapter... It's when Abraham is 99. He's 99. He says, now I'm God Almighty. At 75, he's like, this would be kind of a miracle. At 80, this is a crazy miracle. Try this guy. Well, you know, 85, oh, it's 87. This is really insane. At 99, it's impossible. And when it's impossible, the only one who can step in is God Almighty. Did you get it? And at that point, God says to Abraham, before this point, you will have never known me this way. I am God Almighty. Almighty. I am so mighty that I'm mightier than your impossible. Let me say that again. God Almighty is mightier than your impossible. You're 99. You can't possibly have a kid, for goodness sakes, but I'm God Almighty. 
The next time, by the way, then he'll do in this. Again, this is the fourth. Was, by the way, when Jacob gets sent to Padam Aram. God's, his, his dad, actually, Isaac, sends him away. This boy's never left a house, is what we kind of get out of all of it. And he goes, I'm going to send you away, hundreds of miles away. Oh, man, God Almighty, I'm going to need. And God says, look, I'm God Almighty, I'll take care of you. I mean, Jacob's like a man of the kitchen, and he's stepping out of all this. And God goes, look, I'm God Almighty. I'm gonna, you're in a place that's so scary and so big, and you've never been there, and you're overwhelmed by everything. I'm, I'm God Almighty, I'll take care of it. Then he says, look, now I'm going to get you back home. I'm God Almighty. I'll get you home too. I'll take care of you when you're in a foreign, in a foreign land and you don't know how in the world this is going to work out. I'm God Almighty. And you can just see, that tells me where Jacob was. Jacob's like, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so overwhelmed. There's no possible way any, I can do anything to solve this. And God goes, so you're, it's, you're in an impossible now. Good, because if you're in an impossible, I'm God Almighty. I'd like to meet you that way. And you know the problem is none of us want to be put in an impossible. Does that make sense? But to be honest, we will never know God as God Almighty unless he puts us in those places. By now he stinketh. He's been dead four days. Oh, good. So it's impossible, is it, Mary? It's impossible, is it, Martha? Good. But he's been dead three days. Well, that's what makes him God Almighty. And those are the three times before this, twice of them have been with Jacob. He goes, hey, may God Almighty grant you mercy before this man. One thing I've learned, now this is not, this is not Jacob speaking. This is Israel. And he says, let me tell you, one thing I've learned is when it's impossible, there's only one person to call. When it seems possible, you'll call you. But if God's going to deliver you from you, he's got to put you in a place where you can't call you to get it. And all that's left is God Almighty. And now we see Israel. Do you get it? Well, you're going to have to take Benjamin with you. And as far as I can tell, Simeon's already dead. Joseph's already dead. And God goes, let me tell you how... God Almighty, I am. I'm going to bring back your dead son of over 20 years in your mind. He's going to be the guy. He's going to actually take you and all of your family, and you're going to live with him for the next 17 years, the rest of your life there. He's going to give you the best land, and for the next five years of famine that still remain, you guys are going to be all taken care of. Right now, you're hoping to get a little bit of grain to eke by, to eke by. And, and your son that you thought was dead 20 years ago is the guy that's going to actually bring you in and give you everything you need. That's more than anything. That is God Almighty. And I don't know what it is in your life right now that's just in the category of impossible. Now some impossible will be things that God is removing the tumor and he's made it impossible because he doesn't want you to want it. Other things that are impossible are so that God can be God Almighty. Sometimes he's actually God the carver. Sometimes he's God the Almighty. But in every case, he's the great physician and he's the great king. And I just want to tell you, I don't have to tell him which is which. All I ask is, God, could you have me hate what you're removing? Is that a fair prayer? Now, that's a dangerous prayer because all of a sudden you realize your appetites could switch just like that. You're like, whoa, I liked this last yesterday. What just happened? I'll tell you what happened. God answered the prayer that you just prayed because it was according to his will. So listen, as we go to prayer and then prepare now 
for communion. Is he really God Almighty? In more than your head. What's impossible right now for him? That's different from what's impossible for you. What's impossible for him? Is there someone you love that just seems like they're too far gone? Is there something going on in you that you feel is too far gone? Have you not gotten the parcel in regards to that, pra- that place where you're like, God, I'm still struggling with this thing? A little newsflash, by the way. Dead people don't struggle. You're alive. Praise the Lord for that. Now, are you still trying to wrestle with God over something and he's actually kind enough to let you wrestle? You know, he's standing there. You ever see those little cartoons? And the guy's like, da, 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 da. and the guy's like, yeah, okay, oh, yeah, there you go. That's good, good. Okay, why don't you work on this spot right here, you know? And it's like, we're like, come on, God. No, I just really need, I really need, I really need. And God's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you just, you, and we're going to fall over exhausted before God actually gets a bruise. And, and yeah, you know, oh, God, I just, I'm just, I'm going to praise him more because the power of prayer, the power of prayer is like, God's like, look it, you need to trust in the power of the one you're praying to. And he's a good and he's almighty God. So as we pray now, we are praying, friends, to God Almighty. I want to remind you, we are praying to God Almighty. And what we are praying, and I know I can tell you what God's will is for you. God's will is to kill your Jacob and make you Israel. Now, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, all you are is Jacob. But the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ, the penalty is paid. And welcome to the great adventure with the rest of us. And that's the choice I want to give you now. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you, Lord, so much for this beautiful process we're watching with Jacob to Israel. And thank you, Lord, for opening that up to me. And Lord, I, I know i got to confess to you, there are just times in my life, Lord, I want to fight you over, over tumors that are cancerous and gangrenous. And yet, Lord, in all of that, somehow I've just grown accustomed to the dead body strapped to me. So much so that I would seek it after you've already severed it from me. And God, I just pray that you would today. And I, I just pray with the saints here. And, I, and as, as pastor, but Lord, as a Christian, as a child like they are before you, I just pray, God, will you just have me hate what you want to eradicate from me? So that I don't fight you for what you're letting, you're removing from me. But God, instead, that I would thank you for what you're doing in my life, because what you're doing is good. It's never bad. And so I pray right now, Lord, for every brother and sister in this room, myself included, oh God, please, let us loathe that which you loathe. Let us find abominable what you find abominable. And give us boldness to stand out when the rest of the world applauds what you call evil. To not bow when everyone else's face is on the ground. And to bow to you even if others won't. To trust your word when others mock it. To hold to the faith that others hold in contempt. And Lord, in that that we would be willing to throw ourselves at the great surgeon's table and allow you to perform whatever surgery you want. But God, if you remove it, it's not good. You're not going to remove what's good. 
So let us willingly relinquish what you want to take because I don't want to love what's not mine. And with that, Lord, I just pray right now that you would allow me on the other side of that to love and to celebrate that which you are doing in my life. For what you are removing, may I gladly let go of, but may I gladly embrace what you are bringing in that I could celebrate with you the very things that you know are best for me. So make my life one, Lord, that gladly will distance itself infinitely from that body of death that I once was. But right now, at the sound of this voice, before we jump into communion, if there is anyone here who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or they're not sure, they can walk out of here. You can walk out of here, sure. He's died on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sin, even as been discussed. And he would all he's offering now, all he's asking you to do is to say yes, to accept that gift, surrendering yourself to him, to allow him to be the Lord of your life. So he could begin that beautiful project now of delivering you from its power. And with that in mind, as sin no longer has mastery over us as Christians, and we see God give us land, Lord, may we be praying right now if there be anyone here. And if today you want to accept the gift of Jesus Christ, then I ask you just to listen to this prayer. And at the end of it all, if you agree, I ask you to say a confident and a resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be mine. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. And you as a righteous judge punish wrong. But I believe you so loved me that you punished my wrong by sending your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross on my behalf. He was perfectly innocent and he paid the price for my guilt and all of the guilt of this world. And dying on the cross, it was paid in full. And then raising again, he offers me the new life now of a person that's no longer enslaved to that sin but celebrating now the power of your spirit as I surrender myself to you and to Jesus as my Lord and Savior in payment, my Redeemer and Ransom. So have me. I'm yours. And with that, Lord, continue now from this point as I step into this world and this relationship with you. Make me the person you intend for me to be, that I would walk and live as you intend because I know that's best. So here I am, I'm yours, in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. <clears throat> Thank you for the privilege, the honor of going through the Word with you. I love being the pastor of this church. I love it. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, we're going to partake of communion. Now, what this is, is we are celebrating the Lord's death on our behalf and his resurrection. So stand with me, if you will. And instead of singing anything in this moment, let the Lord speak to your heart. If there's anything at this moment the Lord puts on your heart, just say, Lord, it's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Take it. Do with it as you please. We'll hold on to these items. We'll partake of them together. Let's do that now.
Thank you, honey. It's shaped like a heart. It's shaped like a heart. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whether it is even at this day, be welcome to join in us, join with us in this. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, the night of Pesach, the night of Passover, he took bread. The bread would be called the lemechani, the bread of affliction, and he broke it. This is the symbol of our bondage, our affliction, and he takes it in God himself, his own hands, break it in front of us and say, your bondage is broken, it's over. But he does this because the price was paid in himself. In essence, what we're holding is our price tag. This is the symbol of what it took to redeem you. God's own brokenness for your wholeness. And that's the blessing we pray as we partake of it. We do so saying, thank you, Lord, for, for, for choosing to be broken so that I could be whole, for paying such a price to make me yours. The blessing, and we'll count it in Hebrew, blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread up from the earth. <clears throat> Baharu Adonai Ilehanu Malak Holam Hamatsi Lechem Minha Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread up from the earth. Amen.
And so it is as we've partaken of that which symbolizes Jesus' own sacrifice with his own body. It's the cup that reminds us, even as we would say, the bread is what testifies of what purchases us or who. It's the cup that testifies of what keeps us or who. It's this cup that testifies that it's never been your faithfulness, your goodness, your performance, but rather Jesus' faithfulness that's kept us. Praise God, because if it relied on us, we'd have all messed it up by now. But he promised he'd never leave us nor forsake us. This is a gift. He has no intent of returning. This is the cup that Jesus says, how sure can you be? It's like I sign it with my own blood. I can't be more serious than that. But a cup is the semblance of a husband and a wife. The intimacy and the celebration of a union between two people, so melding that they disappear in each other's arms. And in that, in that glorious romance, that fruitfulness comes. God had never intended you to be an island, but in unifying yourself with the living God, He will make you fruitful. You don't have to force it or fight it. Enjoy your king. And watch what he does. And that's the blessing. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Baruch Atu Adonai Eleanu Malek Haolam Borei Priyagofen Borei Priyagofen Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. Amen. Well, IITs, Israel in trainings. Enjoy this week. He has ordained for you glorious things to reveal himself as Almighty, as friend, and as the Israel maker. Lord, bless our precious brothers and sisters and make this day a day filled with your glory. Jesus, in your name. Amen. God bless you, saints.